Hello and welcome to a new episode of the podcast of the German Historical Institute London. Um, I am Christina von Hodenberg, the director of the Institute. This series grew out of the summer term lectures of the German Historical Institutes on the histories of feminism. And today we have with us uh, Maud Ann Bracke. She is a um, senior lecturer at the University of Glasgow and her expertise lies in the history of feminism, gender and work, uh, 1968 and European communism. Uh, hello, Maud Ann. Hello. Uh, thank you for having me. Nice to meet you. It's uh, very good to have you here. Um, your topic today will be inventing reproductive rights. Um, and this is a very relevant topic today. Um, not only we still have a lot of disagreements in the public spheres in different countries about women's reproductive rights. Um, it is a key issue in culture wars in several countries up to today. Um, we also have um, current debates about gender inequalities in medical provision and in sexual health um, here in the UK. I do recall that um, earlier this month we saw the release of a governmental review in the UK revealing critical failures of the National Health Service um, regarding a series of medical scandals affecting female patients, for example. Um, so um, I, th I think it is very important to connect the history of feminisms to the history of the body, to the history of female bodies um, and the medical profession as well. And of course, your topic does that very well. Um, but we don't want to talk about today. We want uh, to hear about the history uh, of, in this case, the period after the Second World War. Specifically, I think your lecture will focus on France in the time period between 1945 and 1980. And I understand that you have a new book project um, which is on France and Italy. Um, here we will focus on family planning and, and feminism in France. Um, I should also mention that um, there's actually very interesting work of yours that our listeners can access um, in bookshops, uh, in libraries. Namely, there's uh, two monographs, one from 2007 on um, West European communism and the Czechoslovak crisis of 1968 under the title, Which Socialism? Who's Detente? Question marks. Um, and then from 2014, and already in the history of feminism, the book Women and the Reinvention of the Political Feminism in Italy, 1968 to 1983, a book that has appeared with Routledge and has also been translated into the Italian. And I should say that you did your PhD at the European University Institute in Florence, and you have held visiting appointments uh, at Sciences Po in Paris and France, um, but you've also done other stations on your um, uh, academic biography lead to the Netherlands, to Belgium, maybe? Mm -hmm. 
Yes. <laughs> um, Where I'm living from, yeah. So you're well traveled and um, you have worked on a number of topics in the history of communism and in the history of Europe, in the history of feminism. The actual topic of the paper, and I repeat that here, is Inventing Reproductive Rights, Sex, Population and Feminism in Europe, 1945 to 1980. So over to you at this point. Introduction. The principle that individuals ought to be able to make their own choices regarding procreation, that is to say, whether to have children, when, in what circumstances and with whom, is nowadays accepted in parts of the world, despite notable exceptions and the fact that access to contraception and safe abortion remains problematic in many countries. How did we come to think of reproduction in terms of human, individual and undeniable rights? This is the central question motivating my research which attempts to historicize discourses of bodily autonomy and individual choice in procreation. While individuals have throughout history exercised and given expression to reproductive agency in different ways, I argue that the modern invention of reproductive rights occurred at a specific moment in time, the second half of the 20th century, and at a specific historical junction marked by accelerated political and social-cultural change. This phase starts in the aftermath of World War II, with the articulation of human rights discourse, the changes in women's social roles, the globalization of demographic debate and decolonization, all of which contributed to novel ideas regarding the social meaning of human procreation. The phase ends with the inscribing of reproductive health and rights into the United Nations human rights system at the Second International Conference on Global Population held in Mexico City in 1984, in a language that was explicitly gendered and linked in with women's social status. The emergence of reproductive rights discourse was less linear than we might expect. It was shaped by quite distinct discourses, policy interventions and values, including the anxiety of the 1960s regarding global overpopulation, neo-eugenics and the normalizing of the family, as well as the sexual revolution, the invention of the pill and feminist activism. This lecture situates France and Western Europe in the transnational developments which made possible the emergence of reproductive rights discourse following World War II. I shall consider two moments in the genealogy of reproductive rights discourse in France, instances of legal change and intense public debate. The first is family planning activism in the 50s and 60s, which was key in leading to the legalization of contraception through the, the Neuwicht Law of 1967. And the second moment is the new, the so-called new feminism, which exploded onto the political scene in France around 1970 and crucially contributed to legal reform on abortion through the Vail Law of 1975. In discussing these two key moments, this lecture demonstrates that it was the feminist movement of the 70s which introduced a principled notion centered crucially on a woman's right to choose. This lecture tells an essentially chronological development of such ideas. It starts with the global context shaping the dissemination of family planning ideas in France, then discusses the debates surrounding legal reform on contraception and abortion, and concludes on a number of critical remarks regarding the limitations of the position of French feminists viewed in a global context. The paper is based on recently released archives archives held at the Archive de Féminisme at the University of Angers. Contraception and family planning. French family planning was a success story. 
dramatically modifying cultures and discourses with regard to sex, family and demography. Its success was possible thanks to the dissemination of the contraceptive pill from the early 60s onwards. Following 1945, family planning emerged as a globally entangled movement and set of discourses. Underpinned by the desire to normalize and globalize the small nuclear family and by fears of overpopulation in the developing countries, family planning associations aimed to convince and pressurize women and to a lesser degree men into reducing their fertility, providing them with contraception. From the 1950s, globally operating organizations such as the Population Fund, the Ford Foundation and International Planned Parenthood Federation set up projects around the world, in many cases supported by national governments but sometimes in conflict with them, in an attempt to disseminate sexual knowledge, contraceptual technology and medical practices such as the gynecological visit. Post-war global family planning built on early 20th century social medical practices centered on contraception in the UK and the US. It inherited from those earlier initiatives the higher, what I call the hierarchization of reproductive bodies according to race, class and ability. That is to say, the notion that some bodies are more worthy of procreation than others and some individuals more clearly endowed with reproductive agency than others. They also inherited from early 20th century initiatives the close intertwining of ideas regarding family planning with wider demographic concerns of optimal population size. And it also shared with these earlier approaches the fact that principles of individual choice and bodily autonomy were only marginally important to, although not entirely absent from, the discussions. The novelty after 45 was the globalization of demographic debate and the reframing of family planning as a response to the increasingly globalized post-colonial world. In post-war Europe too, demographic arguments were paramount in discussions of family planning and contraception. The immediate post-war years saw a pro-natalist drive, particularly pronounced in France and West Germany, and slightly less so in the United Kingdom and Italy. However, in the 1950s, a curious discursive shift occurred. Experts and the public came to be influenced by the US-originating discourse of the problem of global overpopulation. This was epitomized in the book The Population Bomb by PRNR and A. Ulrich of 1968 and, reframed, and it reframed debates on global security, global prosperity, third world development, family planning, contraception and gender relations. And this in US and West European governments as well as in supranational bodies such as the United Nations. Different varieties of the discourse of global overpopulation existed, but the common denominator was the belief that it was rapidly becoming a problem with the epicenter of this problem located in the developing world. In West Germany, as argued by Annette Tim, in the 1960s, demographers argued for the need to nationally elevate fertility while at the same time developing projects aimed at reducing fertility in the global south, and those, those two as interlinked. In France, a country with deeply seated fears of low fertility since the 19th century, family planners were careful not to break the pronatalist consensus, repeating over and over that arguing in favor of legal contraception was not a position in support of fertility, but rather that they aimed to create a culture of what they called responsible parenthood and to solidify what they called the traditional family. French Family planners and demographers did warn about population growth in developing countries, but in a much debated and pivotal in 
intervention. Jean Ménard, professor and director at the École Pratique des Instituts in Paris, in 59 argued that policy interventions aimed at manipulating fertility ought to be abandoned in France, in Western Europe and in the Global South, as, and I quote, there cannot be human dignity when there is no choice. A society which does not allow free choice in this area is not a free society. End of quote. It was this disconnection of the issue of family planning from demographic arguments that facilitated the emergence of views on reproduction as based on individual rights. French family planning resulted from encounters between radical civic engagement, reform eugenics, women's activism and the drive to normalize the nuclear family. It stood out in the European context for its large numbers of supporters, political influence and early female leadership. Maternité Heureuse, Happy Motherhood, was created in 1956 by a group of secular and Protestant and highly educated women, including sociologist Evelyne Sulero and gynecologist Marie-André Lagroix-Velhalle. Their advocacy for legal birth control was centered on the desire to disseminate a culture of responsible parenthood, or what they called responsible parenthood. And their discourse was also very strongly centered on the need to reduce illegal abortion, at the time estimated at around half a million per year. Maternité Heureuse was refounded as the Mouvement Français pour le Planning Familial, MFPF, in 1960, an organization that counted around 100,000 members by 67. By 65, it had created around 50 clinics around, uh, uh, across the country, with over 400 medics illegally prescribing or even handing out contraceptives to married couples. MFPF, MFPF was revolutionary in creating a de facto situation where the pill was widely available whilst being illegal. More broadly, it shaped the early stages of the sexual revolution by creating new forms of sexual knowledge, increasingly challenging what had here to been the official source of medical information, the Ordre des Médecins, the official association of medical professionals which maintained opposition to the legalization of contraception until 67. French family planning was strongly influenced by the transnational family planning movement. Maternité Heureuse was affiliated with IPPF, with International Planned Parenthood Federation, in 58, and MFPF strengthened, further strengthened this affiliation. Through it, MFPF underwent the influence from a transnational neo-eugenics network involving activists and scientists that had supported Nazi and fascist race eugenics. MFPF established a particular connection with Carlos Payton Blacker, a London-based psychiatrist and leading figure of the UK Eugenics Society between the 30s and the 50s. He was, since 1953, the administrative chair at IPPF and played also a leading role in the British Family Planning Association. Velhal, MFPF's director between 56 and 68, regularly sought Blacker's personal advice on the science and technology of contraception, and the latter sent her educational material as well as contraceptives. Reform eugenicists across Europe and North America attempted to sanitize their views, changing the language of eugenics and reframing the claims to scientific legitimacy. This was helped by the advances in genetics research on the one hand and by the discourse of global overpopulation on the other. The two issues, on the one hand the size and on the other hand the makeup of the global population, went hand in hand in their eyes and needed to be addressed jointly. The reframing of eugenics and its connections to family planning were summed up in an article 
by Blacker for the journal Eugenics Review. And I quote, From this eugenic standpoint, we can perhaps most succinctly des describe genetic potentiality in terms of the achievement of producing, by, by design, an intelligent, healthy and united family. This performance is encouraged by some environments and discouraged by others. The object of a eugenically conceived social policy should be to spread this ideal. End of quote. Here, family planning replaced biology as a vehicle in MFPF's actions were concerns about particular groups, the poor and the immigrants, having too large offspring. Around 1960, MFPF developed targeted actions vis-à-vis -vis immigrant families. Cécile Goldet, gynecologist and one of the founders of MFPF, led a project with interviews with men and women from around 1,000 immigrant families of Algerian, Portuguese and Italian origin in the Paris region. With regard to the Algerian families, she concluded that the situation was becoming dramatic, referring to high numbers of both abortions and unwanted children. Her impression was that the birth rate among these families was higher than it would have been had these families not left their country. This was so, she argued, because a number of children would not have survived in Algeria but do survive in France, and also because in Algeria the women would have had access to larger kinship networks, which would have facilitated abortion. She portrayed the Algerian women as torn between traditional practices and values, which in her view involved what she called the banalization of abortion as everyday contraception, and on, the one, and on the other hand their desire to Europeanize and modernize, which in her concept would involve responsible parenthood, spacing of children, smaller families and medical examination. It is clear that the family planners were concerned by the large, large size of non-French families, driven by, that they were driven by racialized notion, notions of population and a hierarchical view on reproductive agency, according to culture and race, and that they were motivated by the dissemination of what they saw as a modern and European family. Thanks to sustained campaigning by MFPF and its dissemination of the pill, the legalization of contraception was never far off the newspaper headlines or the political agenda in the mid-60s. The existing legislation dating from 1920 banned all sale and advertising of contraception. Condoms were freely available in pharmacies, but did not feature prominently in discussions on legalization of contraception due to their association with venereal disease and infidelity. French public opinion on birth control was notably shifting, and a survey of 1962 revealed that 57% of those asked were in favor of legalization of contraception for women, whether married or not. During the presidential campaign of 65, contraception emerged as a salient theme, and the candidate for the Fédération de la Gauche Démocratique et Socialiste, the centre-left, François Mitterrand, declared himself in favour of legalisation, reflecting a growing consensus on the centre-left. Lucien Neuwert, since 1958 a member of the Assemblée Nationale for the Gaullist party Rassemblement pour la République, in 66 put forward a report proposing the legalization of contraception, which formed the basis for the eventual Neuwirth Law of 67. Neuwirth worked closely with MFPF in preparing the report and shared with MFPF a desire to create a new culture uh, of responsible parenthood based on the nuclear family. And he shared with them a refusal to see family planning as primarily aimed at reducing fertility. 
His report contained analysis of medical aspects, religious aspects and individual liberties. It discussed the demographic situation of the country at length, concluding that as France's historical struggles with depopulation had come to an end, demography could no longer motivate or should no longer motivate the debate on contraception. The Nieuwicht Law of 67 legalized the sale and manufacturing of all forms of contraception. It was passed with the support of the centre-left, but only part of the Gaullist and Nieuwicht's own party. The pill became available to married women only and was not free of charge. Doctors were not obliged to give their patients information about contraception and many refused to do so. Moreover, the amount of contraception women could be prescribed was strictly a card, was introduced to control how many each woman procured. Despite its limitations, the adoption of the Nieuwert law was a milestone in French social history, fundamentally shifting discourses regarding autonomy and individual choice in reproduction and resituating women's political and intimate agency. Its passing was possible thanks to the fact that the two main institutions in the country opposing legal contraception, the Catholic Church on the one hand, the Ordre des Médecins, faced a widespread internal disagreement and even revolt on the issue. On issues of sexuality and gender, many Catholics disregarded the Church's teachings, specifically its continued ban on contraception, sex outside marriage and abortion. The increasingly open debates within the Church regarding uh, contraception sexual norms were abruptly nipped in the bud, however, by the publication of the encyclical letter Humanae Vitae on the regulation of birth, by Pope Paul VI in 68. It resolutely asserted the Church's ban on any use of contraceptive technology. Scholarship has pointed at the disenchantment felt by millions of Catholics around the globe following the publication of Humanae Vitae, and France was no different. The French bishops were quick to react in an attempt to limit the damage done. Barely disguising their bewilderment, they issued a statement which formally adhered to the Vatican's position, but at the same time specified that there were instances in which what they called sincere couples found themselves genuinely conflicted because natural birth control methods did not always provide a sure basis. It was clear herewith that family planning principles had permeated widely in French society, including its conservative sectors. Feminism and the question of abortion. The legalization of the pill led to new experiences and expressions of reproductive agency. As demonstrated for England by Kate Fisher, reproductive agency started from the 50s increasingly to lie with women rather than men. Others too have argued that the feminization of reproductive agency across the Western world started well before the legalization of the pill. It is helpful in this regard to break down the feminization of reproductive agency into a subjective dimension and a political dimension, the former referring to reproductive decision-making in the individual's life choices and within the couple, and the latter referring to the public and political connection of reproduction with women's lives, choices and rights. Mapping the subjective feminization of reproductive agency in France during this period would require further research, but the political feminization is evident from public discourse. In debates preceding the legalization of the pill, contraception and family planning came to be associated explicitly and almost exclusively with women, their needs and their choices. At the parliamentary discussions, 
advocates and opponents of legal contraception converged in one respect, in their centering of this issue on women's social roles, women's sexual lives, women's morality or women's rights. Peculiar further to the case of France was that the feminization of reproductive agency occurred in spite of the fact that the uptake of the, of the pill immediately following legalization showed a modest increase rather than a sudden spike. In 1970, according to a survey by the Institut National d'Etudes Démographiques, only between 6 and 7% of women, between 20 and 44, used the pill. And this number rose to 25% by 75. One could argue that it was the possibility of using the pill, whether one chose to do so or not, and its legal legitimacy, which changed values and attitudes. What is more, the relatively low uptake of the pill by women after 67 strengthened calls for legal abortion. The estimated yearly number of legal abortions by the late 60s had risen to around 850,000. And at the same time, this phenomenon was discussed now openly by both opponents of and advocates for legal reform. For those in favour of the liberalisation of both contraception and abortion, there was now more urgency around the latter as it emerged that large groups of women were reluctant to exercise their right to use the pill. Progressives now also argued that legal abortion was needed to compensate for the limitations of the new Wicht law, namely the fact that it left unmarried women with no legal access to contraception. However, negative and moralistic discourses on abortion were deeply rooted, rooted and the entrenched images of abortion as infanticide and of immoral women as baby killers reared their ugly heads throughout this period and well into the 70s. The periodical France Catholique in February 73 qualified widespread illegal abortion as the massacre of the innocents. The Catholic Church maintained strict condemnation of abortion under any circumstance, including insistent rape. What crucially made possible the emergence of a new consensus around legal reform, I argue, was the introduction by the feminist movement of a novel set of discourses and practices. While it while it campaigned for legal reform as part of a much wider coalition involving a range of actors, family planners, the sexual progressives of the student movement and the cultural avant-garde, and the various parties of the radical and the centre-left, among this wider coalition it was the feminist movement which tied together elements of discourse involving individual autonomy, sexual liberation, critiques of patriarchy and women's rights into an encompassing set of principles. Of principles. Feminist campaigning from the early 70s on the question of abortion was intense and impacted widely on public and political discourses. The many feminist collectives emerging around the country in the wake of the, of the 1968 uprising were motivated above all by a politic of, politics of the body, that is to say, a desire to politicize the private sphere, intimacy, everyday life and family. Abortion soon emerged as a pivotal issue for the feminist movement at large, which was centered on the Mouvement pour la Libération des Femmes, MLF. Between 72 and 75, MLF organized public demonstrations, petitions, conferences, and adopted, adopted a number of uh, slogans and principles, including, for example, the key one, avortement libre, free abortion, that is to say, free of choice and uh, free of charge. Uh, other slogans and, and, and uh, key principles included no law over our bodies, aucune loi ne passera sur nos corps, pleasure rather than reproduction, let us choose, plutôt jouir 
que se reproduire, laissez-nous choisir. Most feminist groups took on the radical position of demanding full liberalisation or a law that would explicitly guarantee a woman's right to chew in all circumstances and would impose neither conditions nor time limits. Feminist groups created a new language with which to speak of abortion, a language that started from one, one's own lived experience, was guilt-free and informed by an understanding of the ubiquitous impact of patriarchy on individuals, institutions and cultures. In the breaking of century-old taboos around abortion, it was crucial that it were women themselves who created this new language. The Manifesto of the 343 did exactly this. Women declared publicly and in a straightforward and therefore disruptive way that they had had an illegal abortion and denounced the state's oppression of women's bodies. Published in 1971 in Le Nouvel Observateur, the manifesto included signatories by renowned women in arts, literature, media and science. Contrary to the organizers' expectations, none of the signatories were charged or arrested, illustrating the fact that it had become impossible to apply the law. This was also reflected in the fact that in 1971 only 340 condemnations occurred. The manifesto galvanized significant support for the manifesto in left-wing and center-ground papers, with the notable exception of Charlie Hebdo, which referred to the signatories as whores. Although, of course, many conservative com commentators condemned it. The specificity of the feminist approach was to universalize the phenomenon of abortion and to frame its legality as a fundamental and universal human and women's right. This was evident evident in the defense plea by Giselle Halimi at the so-called Bobigny trial of 72. At this trial, an underage woman, Marie-Claire Chevalier, stood accused of having procured an illegal abortion, alongside four women, among whom her mother, who had helped her. The trial was turned into a focal point for the pro-legalization campaign, and Chevalier was supported by feminist initiatives across the country. Her lawyer, the French-Tunisian feminist Giselle Halimi, had signed the Manifesto of the 343 and had founded Choisir, a key feminist organization calling for legal reform on abortion. Halimi framed her plea in terms of universalist arguments regarding women's citizenship and universal rights. Chevalier's fate was potentially the fate of any woman in France, she said, and it demonstrated the need for the law to safeguard women's rights, safety and bodily autonomy. She used her platform to introduce key feminist arguments to the public, noting that obliging women to be mothers was a principal way in which the state oppressed women. And that the rape which Chevalier had undergone reflected a much wider problem against which the state faced. Furthermore, the feminist discourse, centered on principles of full bodily autonomy and reproductive agency, grew out of practical activism. In the early 1970s, engaged in illegal abortion work, setting up clinics and performing abortions in safe circumstances and free of charge. The Mouvement pour la Liberalisation de l'Avortement et la Contraception, MLAC, MLAC, was the key platform coordinating such activities. While it was gender mixed, it was strongly influenced by radical feminist collectives and by an anarchist ethos that was more interested in community self-help than legal change. It attracted significant numbers of professional medics and bypassed medical institutions 
and in this was key in introducing in France a number of novel medical practices, including crucially the so-called Carmen method, a safe and relatively easy abortion procedure. Mlac clinics existed alongside the earlier family planning clinics, and, it, and Mlac radicalized the latter organization. It was this practice-based understanding of abortion that led the feminist movement to critique other actors with which it collaborated in wider public mobilization. It denounced the supposedly progressive post-68 milieu for what it considered their banalization of the issue of abortion and for, and for encouraging women to have abortions because it allowed free, se free sex and the de-responsabilization of men. Instead, feminists situated the issue of abortion in relation to wider calls for cultures of sex and sexual practices. As the radical group Féministe Révolutionnaire stated in uh, the key feminist periodical Le Torchon Brûle in 72, abortion is not our liberation. They also stated, abortion is an aggression, although a necessary one. With these critiques, the feminist movement refused to envisage a situation where free sex would mean that men were de-responsabilized, and it also, and with these critiques, and throughout these critiques, the feminist movement also allowed for a sharper articulation of the key principle of women's urgency to emerge. In November 74, a bill put forward by Simone Veil, Minister for Health, legalizing abortion in certain circumstances, was approved by the government led by Jacques Chirac. And it was presented to Parliament for discussion. Simone Weil had meanwhile also prepared a bill that further facilitated access to contraception by abolishing the carnet à souche and by making contraception reimbursable on social security. And this law had passed in December 74. The abortion bill stated that any adult woman in distress sufficed to authorize it. The bill stipulated the grounds on which women could have an abortion, health, mental state, social circumstances, abortions needed to occur before the 10th week. Medics had the right to object on conscientious grounds, but they had to inform the woman of this immediately. Abortions after 10 weeks were possible if a commission of medics established that either the woman's health was at risk or the fetus presented serious problems. This was a radical, very radical bill in its wording and its stipulations. Feminists organized mass street demonstrations across the country. Most organizations supported the bill, but some collectives called for more radical legal uh, stipulations, such as legalization without time limit or full women's bodily autonomy, rather than the need for medical approval. Late 74 also saw high-profile activism by, activism by various groups opposed to legal abortion, including the recently founded and rapidly growing Laissez les vivre, Let Them Live. Conservative MPs attempted but failed to obtain a declaration of unconstitutionality by the Constitutional Court. The law was voted through Parliament in December 74, following riotous debate, and promulgated in January 75. It was slightly more conservative than Vail's earlier bill, stating that the law respects human life from the start, a compromise which won it a few votes from Gaullist MPs. Moreover, the numbers of abortions were to be monitored yearly in relation to demographic trends. The law was intended as a trial period until 1979. Most feminist organizations, alongside the now radicalized family planning movement, immediately declared it to be an unsatisfactory law 
for its requirement of medical approval and its failure to place reproductive agency fully and explicitly in the woman's hands. Concluding remarks. As the case of France demonstrates, the emergence of a discourse of reproductive rights found its origins in a number of globally entangled debates, cultural and technological developments, as well as locally framed political movements and conflicts. While an explicit notion of women's full control over their reproductive capabilities was inscribed neither in the Neurecht law or in the Vale law, and this more broadly characterized the legalization on contraception and abortion, abortion around the Western world in the 60s and 70s, the debates of the mid-70s in France demonstrate that such a principle was broadly, although certainly not universally, accepted in society and held up as a point of reference. The invention of reproductive rights relied on the articulation in the public and political sphere as well as an intimacy of a reproductive subject, that is to say, an individual. During this period, in public and legal discourse, the reproductive subject became a woman. In the debates surrounding the two legal changes, questions of choice and bodily autonomy were increasingly, and by the mid-70s almost exclusively, associated with women's rather than men's rights and actions. In France, this was particularly pronounced. Not only was it due, generally, to the technology of the contraceptive pill placing agency in the hands of women, but in addition to this, the French family planning movement was characterized early on by strong female leadership, presenting a discourse and program centered on women's roles as modern, educated family planners. It was an image that fitted into and modernized the traditions of French maternalism, although in contrast to early 20th century maternalism, the motivation was no longer high birth rates and the focus no longer large families. It was the feminist movement compellingly imposing itself on political discourse in the media and on the streets from around 1970, which presented a novel idea of the gendered reproductive agent and her rights. Unsettling the culture of a woman as mother, dismantling taboos around sex and abortion, and attacking patriarchal oppression of women in private and public spheres, the feminist movement built an original political agenda which pivoted on the sexed body, its integrity, safety and desires, and the rights derived from it. The passing of the Loi Vell in 75 was largely the result of mass feminist mobilization, and the feminist approach was able to impact widely on political debate thanks to its universalizing of abortion as a problem affecting all women and therefore society as a whole. However, this feminist universalism with regard to reproductive rights was characterized by unacknowledged limitations, and in this sense, the feminist movement of the 70s failed to challenge the hierarchization of reproductive bodies inherent in the family planning agenda of the 50s and 60s. In France and elsewhere, family planning often had often explicitly situated non-white Western, poor, working class, disabled or otherwise marginalized women and men as less worthy of reproducing or as insufficiently endowed with the necessary educational culture to make informed choices. As proposed by Dagmar Herzog for the case of West Germany, 1970s feminism in its agenda on abortion failed to problematize its own and wider society's assumptions with regards to disabled women and their wishes and ability to raise children. The argument regarding disability remains to be scrutinized for France, but what is clear is that mainland white 
French feminists failed to interrogate the violations against black women in the French dominion of Réunion in this period. In 1970, it emerged that since the, the mid-60s, between 6,000 and 7,000 women, poor women of color, had been sterilized without their consent on the small Pacific island of Réunion. The French press revealed that this had occurred on the orders of French medics and administrators, who had also imposed contraception on large numbers of local women against Among the debates that followed in France, the feminists' silence was deafening. In not denouncing the issue and in failing to articulate a feminist position, white French feminists revealed an implicit hierarchization of women of color and women living under neo-colonial rule as not included in their supposedly universal reproductive rights agenda. Partly the limitations of the French feminist position here resulted from their focus on a woman's, a woman's right not to have children, which was characteristic of the Western sexual revolution more broadly, rather than on the right to have children. The latter was a principle that animated black feminists in the US and post-colonial feminists around the world, denouncing centuries of violent colonial and patriarchal interventions on non-white women's bodies, aimed at limiting their fertility. In the 70s and 80s, feminists and women's organizations from the global south were able to fundamentally shift the perspective of rep on reproductive rights in debates at the United Nations, leading to the inscription of uh, reproductive health and rights into human rights law in the 1980s. They also developed the notion of reproductive justice, which, among other principles, foregrounds the variety of forms that patriarchal oppression of women's reproductive bodies can take, including both denying the right to have children as well as forcing women to have them. The social conflicts over contraception and abortion in 50s, 70s France were played out in a specific field, one where family planners and feminists principally fought for women to have fewer rather than more children. In, while the family planners in some regards recast eugenicist principles and the hierarchization of reproductive bodies, the feminists foregrounded much more principled and universal notions centered on a woman's right to choose either way. But nonetheless, they too were embedded in and limited by their own social context. So thank you very much, Maud Anne, for, for this um, fascinating talk. Um, can I just start with one question, which is actually a question that we ask all of our uh, podcast authors, and that is, um, how do you understand the history of feminism? What is the history of feminism to you? Yes, thank you, Christina. Um, so the history of feminism, in a way, there are two things. There's the history of feminism writing history of feminism, and then there's doing feminist history. And in a way, they are not entirely the same, but they are, of course, very much connected. And I, I, I do both, if you like. Um, the history of feminism for me is very much um, about, it's very much a history of conflict, the history of power. Uh, one of the things I try to do in my work is to bring feminism broadly defined, women's movements, women's political agency, uh, gendered political agency into the center of political and social history. That is to say, and in, in a famous quote by, by the historian Karen Often, feminist history is political history. That's to say, it really belongs at the center, I think, um, of, of, of our attention in terms of uh, 
kind of broadly defined political and social history because conflicts over gender are are everywhere in kind of mainstream political debates and in social in, in wider social conflict and social and in the social sphere um so that is what feminist history or the history of feminism rather for me is about it's really bringing that in into the center into the center of our attention um it is a, of course feminist history is the history of patriarchy the history of different forms that that patriarchy has taken uh, across time and space um it is all feminist history of is of course also the history of political agency and women but not only women uh, uh, expressing and and articulating various forms of political agency and making intervent political uh, interventions um feminist history as a method is 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 related to this but it's worth uh, talking a little bit also about about the what we could see as the kind of methods or a number of methods of feminist history i think methods of feminist history or doing feminist history which doesn't necessarily has doesn't necessarily have to be about the history of feminism but doing feminist history coming from that tradition that is rooted in 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 or goes back to the 1960s and 70s and the kind of women's historians of the, of the 70s so doing feminist history um is very much about uncovering that agency and of covering different forms of agency uh different forms of political and social agency um and uncovering also at the same time um not only in the public sphere but also agency in the private or in the intimate sphere and this of course relates very much to what i'm working on at the moment in terms of reproductive rights and and uh, sexual cultures and sexual practices um so agency in public spheres in, in 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 private and intimate spheres as well and this is of course where it gets difficult i mean obviously uh, tracing agency in intimate and private settings is something that is really hard to do for the historian but we do have a number of sources and texts that we can analyze in order to retrieve that agency and in order to kind of really um, get a sense of the various ways in which throughout history women have uh, in in the context of patriarchy and within these structures of patriarchy have expressed and 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 claimed various forms of agency that's um that's great um and you mentioned in your lecture um radical uh, radical feminists and different feminist groups mm -hmm. so where does the dividing line between non-radical and radical feminist groups lie for you? What, what does these feminists, what do these feminists do that you call radical? Yes, I think that's a very good question, and I, I noticed that in my in my lecture in my paper at some point I, I talk about the radical feminist collectives in France in the 1970s, and of course we need to clarify what we mean by this. And um, partly I didn't want to kind of go into this particular question too much in this within the scope of this paper because there's, there's 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 really a lot of debate on this or has been a lot of debate on this among historians of feminism debate on well who do we consider to be the feminist groups that we study who do we consider uh, uh, to be radical feminists to be socialist feminists to be liberal feminists there are all these labels when you think of feminism of the 1960s 70s 80s, 70s it is usually kind of considered second wave feminism or feminism of the long 1970s as i call it um, there are all these labels both at the time and also in in scholarship and and often in english language a scholarship the labels that one would find would be radical feminism socialist feminism liberal feminism but there might be others 
Um, this then, this obviously, I mean, these labels don't don't work, or they only work to some degree or to some extent, and they themselves need to be put into question, I think, by historians. Um, nonetheless, I think it is useful to talk about the notion of radical feminism at the time, because I do think um, in France, in Italy, in the UK, in West Germany, in a number of other countries, I do think that there was the long 1970s is a particular phase in the history of feminist movements and women's movements, and that a particular sort of radical agenda was put forward during that time, during the long 1970s. And so in practice, what I then mean in, in the context of this paper and elsewhere, when I talk about radical feminism is I mean feminist groups, feminist collectives, which were separatist. So that was really a kind of a key idea that was put forward by feminist groups at the time. And of course, it's worth pointing out that not all groups or organizations agreed with this. Not all feminist groups or organizations at the time were separatist, but many were. And I do think it's one of the kind of significant features of feminism over the 1970s, that there was this big debate around separatism and that many groups adopted separatist practice. That is to say, women creating women-only spaces and in an attempt to create a women-only uh, uh, discourse and a set of practices. Now, looking back on this today, one, you know, the, one could have all sorts of, one should ask all sorts of questions around this, and one could have critical questions around this. Um, and, and of course, there are big debates around this, even today, uh, or especially today, in, in feminist activism, whether it's still, this is still a valid position or not. The point I would make about the long 1970s and looking particularly at the countries that I've studied most, that is to say Italy and France, is that that separatism had had really a particular function and a particular meaning that these were women in many cases, these were women that came from, you know, around 68, 1968, 1970, that came from a mixed activist political background, that is to say sort of a gender mixed activist political background and um, really felt, and especially with the Italian feminists, you feel that so strongly, really felt at some point that we are getting nowhere in a group that is gender mixed. We are getting nowhere. We need to really separate ourselves and, and create in a way from scratch. That was very much the feeling, create from scratch a number of new practices and discourses and understandings. And we have to do that only as women. Um, so again, I mean, the, the kind of problematic aspect of that, I think, is, is clear. But, uh, but if you historicize it, I think it, it makes sense in that particular time and space. And you see this also with some of the French feminist collectives that I talk about in the paper, which were uh, separatists. So I think that's one, one really particular feature uh, that when we talk about, when I or others or uh, other historians talk about radical feminism, feminism in this period, one feature of it is separatist practice. Another feature of it would be to um, be, be very clear on the need for the feminist movement to be autonomous vis-a-vis -vis other organizations and political actors. So as I also uh, uh, discuss in my paper, um, in the context of the abortion campaign, feminist collectives, feminist organizations cooperated or worked together with, with non-feminist groups, as I say, with family planning organization, with parties of the left, with parties of the radical left. But there was a very strong sense uh, among the feminist movement of having to maintain uh, autonomy, organizational autonomy, vis-a-vis -vis other 
you know, groups that one might work with. And again, if you look at France or, or also at Italy, there's, there are historical reasons at that point why it was felt that that was so important. Because if you look at, for example, the main political parties of the left, socialist communist parties, say in Italy and France at the time, had a long history of having uh, separate women's organizations within the parties that existed. But of course, these organizations were subordinate to the, the wider uh, uh, male-dominated political uh, agenda and the wider sort of patriarchal practices within these parties. So that's also, again, within that context, that historical moment, it made a lot of sense for these feminist groups to say, um, radical feminism means that we are independent, we are autonomous vis-a-vis -vis other political actors. And when I read your pa uh, paper, um... I also thought, well, um, what you're describing really is um, akin to structural racism, really, in both the pre-feminist movement mm -hmm. and the feminist movement uh, in the way that you're saying, well, this, this is actually promoting a specific form of Western white mm -hmm. nuclear families um, mm -hmm. and often explicitly discourage <laughs> discourages um non-white families um mm -hmm. from uh from their own agency um so would you also say that this was actually a structurally racist um policy i would i would not go as far as to say that in in the case of the feminist movement of the 70s i would uh, i would say i would argue this with regard to the earlier period with regard to the the first part of the paper where i discussed the family planning movement the 1950s and the 1960s i mean i think this is quite clear um there is a lot of really excellent international scholarship now on the the transnational family planning movement of this period which is really complex and very multifaceted but but very international in its reach and therefore very interesting but there's lots of excellent scholarship by scholars in the global south or writing on the global south and on the developing countries so-called developing countries of the time of the ways in which family planning organizations um, carried out a really specific agenda with regard to and i discussed this in the paper with regard to what they they feared was the overpopulation that it was occurring in those countries and so as i say in the paper clearly i think and so that scholarship has really pointed at the um at the fact that that these organizations and these actors were really driven by a hierarchical notion of who to put it very simply who is allowed to have children and who is less less so allowed you know allowed to have children and depending on race on cultural social class uh, and on geography of course and ability as well so i mean i think in terms of the global family planning movement this is quite clear from the scholarship that there was an element of structural racism there um and but what is interesting and important for me and where i really want to uh, contribute is that there is there is a, a quite a significant scholarship on family planning uh, for western europe for the case of france for the case of britain uh much less so for italy but for france and britain there is really quite good scholarship on well yeah quite a lot of scholarship on the family planning post-war family planning movement and then their role in the legalization of uh, contraception but that european scholarship i think is really not very critical and i think so that one problem is that that european scholarship on the family planning movement is removed from those insights that come from that scholarship on on the global south and really and i mean i don't want to exaggerate the point but some of that scholarship on 
on 1950s, 1960s European family planning um, really misses, I think, to some degree, misses the point of this being part of a global agenda and that those ideas regarding overpopulation in, 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 in the global south are really reflected also within debates within France, within Britain and elsewhere in a number of ways. Um, and so that scholarship really needs to become more critical of, of the family planning movement in that sense. Um, then when it comes to, you know, your question was about structural racism, when it comes to then the feminist movement of the 1970s, I wouldn't, I wouldn't qualify this as structural racism. I, mean, I, I would rather qualify it in terms of blind spots. So as I say, in the concluding part um, of, of, these are really a couple of concluding remarks that I add uh, at the end of the paper with regard to the events in Réunion, uh, and the uh, and there's excellent scholarship on this by by Françoise Verguez. Uh, the events in Réunion, which which uh, French, which involved the forced sterilization of thousands of, of black women there, and so the French feminists were really quite silent on this. Um, and so I think it's really rather a matter of of, of the blind spots and not wishing to engage with this. And of course, you could argue that there's a racism that's inherent in that and that's implicit uh, in that. But it's for me, really, the point was about not wishing to engage on these on this particular issue. As I say in the paper, I think partly because what was being demanded by, say, for example, black feminists in the US at the time was the right to have children rather than not to have children and not being restricted in your fertility. And of course, this didn't fit in easily with what, what European, West European feminists were trying to do at that point. Interesting, thank you. And uh, one of your major arguments is that there was an increasing feminization um, mm. of reproductive issues um, mm. and that this was relatively new at the time. Now, can I, um, can I press you a bit on this? Because I am not sure whether there wasn't already um, always a certain level of feminization because um, if you look at the name of the uh, uh, maternité heureuse, for example, and the idea that this is all about motherhood that precedes um, the feminist movement in this case, um, isn't it um, the case that you already have a kind of a focus on female bodies before this discourse takes off and before the feminists start to weigh in um, and that maybe the major change is not really the feminization of reproduction as an issue but rather the fact that there is an increasing willingness um, and freedom to talk about female bodies and to actually use these words. So, for example, topics such as menopause or premenstrual stress uh, syndrome or breast cancer, um, all of this was very hard to talk about before the 1960s, 1970s, um, although it was around. <laughs> so, so maybe it's more um, a change in what's actually sayable mm. and discussable than an actual uh, new connotation um, mm. coming up at that point. Yes, thank you for this. I mean, these this, these are really important points. So, uh, on your on your 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 second point uh, about what is say what it becomes sayable, what becomes discussable, I think you're absolutely right. So that's really one of the key 
changes, I think, in this period that a whole, a whole kind of in a way new vocabulary is created. And as I say in the lecture, what's really essential that this is created by women themselves. So women themselves talk about their abortions, they talk about their sexual experiences, they talk, and then slightly later on, they talk about the sexual violence that they've undergone and so on in the public sphere in a way that had not really happened in the past or not, you know, not on the same scale or not to the same degree. So I think that that point about there's, there's a new vocabulary, there's a new language, there's a whole number of things, number of issues relating to female body, to female sexuality, to female pleasure, what have you, that become sable now. Um, and that that is the major change. I mean, it's certainly one of the, the major changes in this period. So I, I absolutely agree with that. It's absolutely important. And this is also why, uh, for example, uh, uh, in the paper, I, I really uh, try to emphasize this the manifesto of the 343 in France, which is really, I mean, this is a bomb that explodes, you know, in French society at this point. It's the first time that on this scale, a number of really publicly known women, uh, very simply, with very little text, if you like, but in very simply and briefly, just simply state, I have had an, an illegal abortion. Um, and the state needs to do something about this, about this problem. So, so this is hugely important. And again, so that language that is created really comes from and it's something i haven't talked about very much in the paper for lack of space but it's very important that our language comes from everyday activism so it's really the everyday grassroots activism among these radical collectives which i mentioned earlier uh, which emerge in the wake of 1968 that that everyday activism and these everyday practices in which they engage including things like consciousness raising where the issue of abortion, but not only abortion, the issue of the body really imposes itself on the discussions and on, on the conversations. And it really, so it's a new language that emerges, very, I think, very clearly from, from grassroots activism and then it somehow finds its way into the political sphere and into the public sphere at some stage through these mass mobilizations for abortion, for example. On your, your other point around periodization, I think it's a very interesting one. I think it's something I want to think about more and, and I think also other scholars uh, should think about more. Um, I, I, I can certainly see your point that, that of course there is there was a feminization of reproduction in the public in public discourse uh, that existed earlier, uh, clearly. Um, what I'm interested more, what I'm in, interested in more or more specifically, I think, is reproductive agency. That really, what we see in this period is that it's the reproductive decision making that is now publicly associated with women. And I'm not sure that that was really so much the case in the past. It's something I want to look into. I'm happy to be challenged on this, but it's something I want to look into. And I think that needs to be mapped more precisely, I think, historically. So the question of agency, the question of reproductive decision making, what one does with, with, one, you know, with these decisions and these choices, I think um, I'm not sure whether in earlier periods it was so clear that reproductive agency uh, lies with women. I, I don't think it was this clear as it then becomes in the 60s and 70s. But the, I mean, you know, again, it's something I, I, I think I want to look at a bit more carefully. I mean, the other point there is that, as I say in the paper somewhere, we really need to make a number of distinctions. And one distinction is between how this is talked about in the public sphere on the one hand, and then on the other hand, of course, the intimate sexual practices, the, what happens within a heterosexual couple talking about or making decisions or or not even making decisions or just, 
in terms of sexual practices, what happens uh, and who makes decisions or who uh, makes default decisions and so on. So, and there, I mean, as I mentioned in the paper, there's interest, really interesting and I think groundbreaking work that was, that's been done by Kate Fisher for the case of England, which really demonstrated quite, perhaps surprisingly, but quite clearly that within couples, within heterosexual couples, that those decisions around children were made that largely the decision making would lie with men and this up to quite a late point in history later than we might think up until the, after the second world war and it's really only then that that changes so that's that's uh, the other point i think we need to kind of make those distinctions between when we talk about reproductive agency there's the political the level of political discourse the level of law but then of course there's also the, the hugely important level of intimate practice and life experience where again in, in many ways, the way I see this, in many ways, the the, um, the changes in political discourse uh, really uh, uh, occur only as a result of those practical changes that occur in terms of sexual practices, because that's really the key point, I think, in this period is the sexual revolution and these changes in sexual practices, what people actually do in their intimate lives. That is the key point, I think. And then those political discourses, uh, 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 I think, largely you know, stem from that, or there's changes in political discourse. Yes, and maybe as a last question, if I may, um, you do compare um, or contrast Italy, France, and the UK in your mm -hmm. book. We have now heard a lot about France. Do you actually expect the same findings that you have now outlined for France mm -hmm. in the UK? Um, I'm particularly asking that because I think we will have a lot of UK listeners to this podcast. Yes, I mean, this is, I, I have to say, I have, I started my work, um, I, I started this book with looking at France and Italy. So my work on the UK is really kind of at the starting point. Um, I think there are, between France and UK, there are lots of similarities, I think. There are lots of similarities for example, in terms of really significant female uh, leadership over some of these pre-feminist, if that's how we can call them, uh, organizations in the 50s and 60s. I think that is sort of that there is a female, um, women are already claiming this issue at that point. In France, this is very clear, but I think in Britain uh, uh, also. Um, and so quite early on. So women are already claiming this issue. And, and as we just discussed earlier, there is a longer history of women in the public sphere claiming these issues, of course, um, much less so in Italy. So that's, I think, where Italy is really very different, that you don't have, really have that immediate post-war stage where women are, are present in the political sphere. I mean, in France, they are in the UK, they are in Italy, less so, I would argue. Uh, and if they are, they, they, they rather don't talk about these issues. Um, so I think in that sense, there's a similarity. What is really different and what something that really interests me is the terms of demographic debate. Because as I emphasize in the, in the paper, uh, demographic debate or debates on demography are absolutely central to these discussions on contraception in the 50s and 60s. So it's, it's, you know, the public discussions on contraception in the 50s and 60s are almost always uh, uh, couched in terms of or related to uh, the question of what is the optimal population size for our country. Um, and so what's different um, in the two cases of the UK and France is that in France, the postnatalist drive is much stronger. 
after the Second World War, and it lasts longer. In the UK, as elsewhere, there is a postnatalist uh, drive, as there is across Europe after the Second World War, but it kind of, by the late, by the early, early 50s, there is a kind of a consensus that oh, this is no longer a problem. Whereas in France, these kind of concerns around depopulation and underpopulation are are very deeply rooted and and sort of you know the goals call for uh, uh, women to to have lots of kind of healthy what he called healthy healthy French babies was very was extremely strong and so that really changes the the terms of debate on contraception as I say in the paper in the case of France um, even those arguing in favor of contraception have to be very careful to um, to emphasize that they are not arguing for uh, lower fertility. So I think this is this was less of an issue in Britain at that point. And in that sense, um, organizations favoring contraception uh, had an easier environment within which to, to, to make their arguments or to put their arguments forward. Um, there was, in some ways, there was a, a, a very progressive climate with regard to these issues compared to other West European countries, hence also the, the relatively slightly earlier legalization, first of contraception and then of abortion. Um, there's, so one of the things would be to look at the precise reasons of that in a comparative perspective, because I think often that British, uh, at least for this kind of topic, the British case is not always compared to you know the rest of Europe. So I think it will be interesting to look at these uh, issues from a co comparative perspective and to really try and pinpoint a number of factors which led um, those two uh, pieces of legal reform to occur slightly earlier in Britain than, than they did in France, for example. I mean, the other important point to make with regards to, to, to Britain is that it's, it's really the legacy of earlier family planning and early 20th century family planning, because Britain was really the centre of that in the early 20th century. Um, and so, but also in some ways, perhaps this is a hypothesis, this is something to be to be looked at. Perhaps also the fact that the eugenics that was part of that early 20th century uh, family planning and those early 20th century campaigns for contraception, the eugenics was, I think, less uh, discredited after the Second World War in Britain than it was elsewhere. I think on the European continent, there was more of a clear break that eugenics is no longer acceptable after the Second World War. And this is, I mean, I'm not putting this out as a thesis. It's something I want to explore. It's kind of a, a, a sense I have. But my impression is, for example, the fact that the eugenics society still exists after the Second, the UK eugenics society still exists after the Second World War, is still very active, is very much involved with family planning. Um, and it's again, it's kind of London is kind of at the center internationally of this movement. Um, I think this is an important uh, distinction. This may well be an important distinction between uh, Britain and, and France and Italy, for example. Well, thank you very much, Maud and Brake, for um, engaging with these questions so fully and for giving this wonderful paper for us. Um, I can't wait to read more on this, but I'm sure um, there will be um, a lot of future research and writing up um, going into this project. Um, and um, I think it is really fascinating work. Thank you very much for coming and um, letting us know about your research. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you, Christina, for inviting me. And it's been a pleasure to, to talk about this. Thank you.